sapitio iwachantu, saparo ko inasatu, made poat wantarayo, sukitika yukoboa, habiwatana sile sanitang utabachayino, jataru damawatandi, hayuano sukang palang. That's part of a traditional blessing chant that speaks to the deeds of our life or the moments of goodness that, like the streams and the rivers that carry the water from the clouds to the great oceans, so may the goodness of our words or actions touch all other beings, those present and those departed. And I begin with that chant um, because I'd like to continue the talk that we started two weeks ago when I was here about death. My father, as many of you know, my father died uh, this last week, and I've just returned from his funeral, and I'm now in the middle of the retreat, or the beginning of the retreat at Santa Sabina, where there's 60 or 70 more of us who are sitting in San Rafael at this beautiful retreat for three weeks. And I speak tonight as a way also to speak to myself. Often when I sit up here to say things, it's as much to say things so that I can hear them talk to myself. As you recall, perhaps, those of you who are here two weeks ago, in the teachings on awakening or mindfulness from the Buddhist tradition, particularly in the four foundations of mindfulness, after one takes a seat and becomes aware of one's own breath and body, there's a whole preparation, a whole section of awakening that has to do with the reflection and awareness of our own death and death around us. And it's there to remind us of the preciousness of life, to have the life that we have, to have our health, to have time to be able to practice, to have some sense of what it means to cultivate wakefulness or compassion, all are great treasures. And so the Buddha said, just as the elephant's footprint is the greatest of them all, and within this can fit the footprint of every other animal, so too Awareness of death is the greatest of the mindfulness meditations because within it all other things can be understood. So when one confronts this fact of death, we know that we'll die, absolutely certain. The only thing that's uncertain is the time. Then the question is, well, what is death? Someone went to a Zen master and asked him one day, what happens when you die? And he said, I don't know. And they said, but aren't you a Zen master? And he says, yes, but I'm not dead yet. <laughs> in the traditional teachings in Buddhism, one doesn't speak of a fixed entity of a soul that is changeless within a being, each of us, 
but rather that we are part of the whole unfolding of the process of life. So that the image then that's used when someone says, well, what happens if there's nothing, no fixed part of you? What happens when you die? One of the images that's used is of a seed that's planted, an acorn that's planted in the ground, and an oak tree becomes a sapling and a, a seedling, and then a sapling and a great oak tree, and then there are more acorns. And the question is whether the acorn on the tree that has grown is the same as the first one? Not exactly. Is it different than the first one? Not exactly. One thing becomes the cause of the next. Or you strike a match and light a candle and blow the match out. And they take the candle and light a lantern and blow the candle out. Is the flame in the lantern the same as the match? Or is it different? Neither is true. Rather, the flame becomes the cause for the next flame and so forth. Each thing that we do in this life or in other lives, it's said, becomes the patterns through which our life evolves. And you can see it in your daily experience. The ways that we think and act become the patterns for the future. So that's one answer about what death is. It's okay, but it's kind of limited. There's a better answer. When someone asked the Buddha for really deep or profound teachings about death, or my own teacher, Ajahn Chah, he said, in a more profound way, there is no such thing as death. No one is born and no one dies. It's all an illusion of separateness. We are the same material cycled over and over. Your own body, even in the physical level, all the molecules change within seven years except the few little brain cells. Um, completely different, looks the same. But in fact, there is nothing separate. It is the patterns of elements changing and no one was born and no one will die. That's the illusion that we live in. That's a better answer, some would say, the deathless. But I don't think it's the best answer. There's yet another way to understand death. A man came to see the Buddha, paid his respects and said, you're a Buddha, aren't you? The Buddha said, yes, that's right, that's me said, fine, good, I have some questions for you. I want to know what happens when you die. And the Buddha asked him back, why would you like to know this? And the man answered, because knowing this, then I will know how to live properly. So the Buddha said, let me ask you, my friend, suppose that there are many lifetimes, as is taught in various great traditions, and that the deeds and actions of this life carry over in some way to others. How would you want to live? The man said, well, I would want to be then uh, very generous with things because it would be a pleasure to do that, but also it would sow the seeds of good karma so that I would receive many good things, generosity back to me in future lives. And I'd want to pay attention and be careful with what I did because I would learn from it, but more than that, because then it would lead to wisdom in a future life. And I'd want to be kind to people, because it feels good now, and because that would sow the seeds of great kindness and love from others in future lives. The Buddha said, just so, my friend. 
And he said, now I ask you another question. Suppose it is that there's only one life. This is it. When you die, that's the end. How then would you want to live? And the man thought about it and he said, well, I would want to be generous because it feels so good and you can't take it with you. Might as well have that pleasure now. And I want to pay attention and be really mindful because if this is the only life, each day is very precious. And I would want to live with great kindness because if it's the only time I could see the people around me, my family, the people I love, I would really want to let them know that I cared for them. And the Buddha said, just so, my friend. And he didn't answer him any further. What he left then was a sense of this mystery of death, which is right there next to us. You know, when you read in the mystical or even in the biblical tradition of Christianity or Judaism, these angels appear to people. Remember what the angels say when they first appear, like the Annunciation to Mary or the, the cherubim and the seraphim and so forth in the Old Testament? The first thing they say, they say, fear not. Imagine, I mean, suppose you're, you know, walking on the land at Spirit Rock or driving on 101 or something, and all of a sudden you see this seraphim. You would want to hear that, like, it's all right, don't be afraid. That's the first thing that they say. And then if you study near-death experiences around the world, as people have begun to do, you discover that people who get close to death and get revived and go through, you know, the, the light and the tunnel and things that Raymond Moody wrote about, then, depending where they live, they often see Jesus and Mary in our culture. Or they see Krishna and Kali in India. Or they see various forms of bodhisattvas and Buddhas in China and Southeast Asia. Amazing capacity of the mind to create all kinds of things. This mystery of death. Each death is a gateway Rabindranath Tagore wrote a poem about death being like the morning star that vanishes with the rising of the sun. Someone came up to me tonight who had recently been with a close friend, a woman who was dying, and got support through the Zen Center Hospice Program. And he talked about being with her at the moment of death and breathing together with her, as some of us have done this joint breathing exercise. There's an incredible beauty, even in death, when it's a conscious death, just as there's beauty in a conscious life. So after my father died, I went. I spent some days with him and came back here for a couple of days. It wasn't clear that he was going to die, but I was concerned that he might. So I flew back again, and I spent some time with his body in this funeral home chapel. They're strange places, very strange places. And I talked to him, and I wept, and I told him things, and I yelled at him for a few things, which he needed, I thought. You know. And I spent time with him, and as I did, and as... We buried him and did our prayers and so forth. There was this very odd experience of sensing 
that there was one way in which he died and another way in which there's more of him because wherever I went, I would be thinking about him and sensing him, could talk to him. This teacher, Ramana Maharshi, wonderful, sage of India, his disciples were saying when he was dying of cancer, don't leave us. They loved him so much and he had such compassion for everyone who came to see them, him. And he looked at them and he said, where could I go? Where could I go? It's like the old Taoist sage who lived in this little hut, kind of a wild man in the mountains. And the Confucian scholars in the town below had some kind of problem. They decided, well, we'll go check with the sage and see if he has some advice for us. So they made this formal party and they hiked up the mountains and they got to this little hut where the ragged man was living and they looked inside and there he was meditating, stark naked. And they were shocked. This is a very un-Confucian thing to do. <laughs> Not, you know, very religious. And they kind of took him out of his meditation and they said, what kind of a holy man are you sitting in your hut with no clothes on? You know, what are you doing with no pants on? <laughs> And the sage looked back and he said, the entire world is my hut. This little building are my pants. <laughs> what I want to know is, what are you doing in my pants? <laughs> so there's this amazing thing with, with death, that there is both less of someone and yet more of them, that there's some way in which you can walk in the woods and they're there to speak to. Being with death slows us down. It softens us. It makes us more gracious. Those of you who have been on the retreats we teach know how the hearts get softer and people get quieter. The cooks at this retreat that started at Santa Sabina have just come back from doing one of the common wheel retreats for people with cancer. And they said, you know, they're even more open over there. It's like there's something so compelling when death is close. It slows us, it reminds us of the preciousness of life. Barbara Ruth, who sits here and is a Sangha member and also disabled, wrote this beautiful poem. I'll just read a few lines from it where she's out walking among the Douglas fir and the Douglas lily. I'm a country girl again, only this time in a middle-aged, disabled body. I once walked the six miles from my house to Kent Lake in less than four hours, but that wasn't my best time. My personal best is eight hours and 15 minutes, <laughs> with time composing photos of the lizard, listening to woodpecker knock at the tree, seeing osprey's nest at the very top. Isn't that a wonderful line? I walked it in less than four hours, but my personal best was eight hours. <laughs> it turns everything upside down, doesn't it? As death can do. There's a wonderful text called the Avatamsaka Sutra in the Buddhist tradition, which describes all of the different worlds, 
that can exist. The universe is made of flowers, and the universe is made of rock and of fire. The universe is made of poetry. The universe is made of metal. Every possible universe and all the beings that exist within them. And within any created universe, it gives the same teachings. In each one appears some form of a Buddha who speaks the basic teachings, that all universes are the same. The Buddha says, he asked the question, if you were to take, a man were to come with a blazing torch and try to burn away the Ganges River, would he succeed? No, the monks around him said. Why not? Because the Ganges River is deep and immense, and he would only become weary trying. Or if a man were to come with a hoe and a shovel and a basket and say, I will dig out the earth and remove all the earth from this earth, would he be able to do so? No, because the earth is deep and wide and great and immense, and he would only become weary. So it is, said the Buddha, that there are truths that no amount of wishing, or no amount of labor, nothing will change. And the Blessed One gave instructions, talk on virtue in the heavens, and the freedom that can come, the cause and the origin of suffering. And when the disciples were thus ready, when their hearts were ready for the immaculate vision of the Dharma, the Buddha spoke these words, all that is subject to arising, all that is created, is subject to passing away. And in those around him, there, gained, there came faith and independence. They crossed beyond doubt, as though turning upright what had been overthrown, revealed what was hidden, showing the way to one who was lost, or holding up a lamp in the dark for those with eyesight to see. That simple phrase, all that is subject to arising, passes away. Anicca vata sankara upatava yadamino upakitava niruchanti desang upasamo sukho. It's part of the traditional funeral chants. It means all created things are impermanent. They have the nature to appear in some form or other for a time and pass away. This is inevitable. For those who know this in their hearts and live within this truth, they can find ease and happiness or freedom. So I tell you a story tonight, which will take a while. And it's a story I heard this week in the East Coast from a dear friend, uh, Clarissa Estes, with whom I was teaching this conference in Washington. It's about death. And it comes from the Latino tradition, from the Mexicano tradition. It seems that in a family born in a village that was poor, they had many children, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, and when the thirteenth child was born to this family, they realized they had run out of godparents. There was no one else around. They'd used all the possible ones up. And it's very important to have a godparent, because the godparent is the one who ties us 
to the cycles of birth and death, who holds us in our heart, in their heart, who gives us heartfelt counsel in our life. The godparent is the spiritual advisor to us. So the parents of this newborn child said, who shall we get for a godparent? Maybe we should just go out into the road and see who comes along, and if there's someone suitable, we will take them. So they went walking down the road, looking for a godparent for their new child, and the first person who came walking up the road was God, <laughs> with a beautiful beard and wearing white robes, as he's depicted in your children's books, kind of walking along in a very dignified fashion, as he does. And he came up, and being God, he said, I already know what's on your mind. <laughs> and uh, yes, I'd be happy to be his godfather. And they said, give us a moment to think about it. And they went and they talked about it, <laughs> whispered, oh, do you think this is a good idea? And gone back and forth. And they went to God, and they said, you know, you know, forgive us. We love you so much. You must forgive us, but... We've been thinking, you know, we watch what you do and you give so much to those who are rich and you give so little. You leave so many others poor in this world and so many sick and mm, we thank you for your offer, but mm, maybe not. And they walked away. And they went further seeking the godparents. And the next person who came to them was the devil. Ah. And in this story, as it's told, you know why he's the devil? Because he's very old, and he's seen everything. And he came up to them, he said, I know what's on your mind, because that's true of the devil too, haven't you noticed? <laughs> he said, and I would be happy to be the godfather, the godparent for your son. And they went, well, please wait a moment, and they talked about it. I think we should, back and forth a little bit, discussing. <laughs> They came up, they said, we don't want to offend you. you know? <laughs> we honor who you are. Uh, but please, please, you know, we, we noticed that you pick some people and you lead them into great difficulty and great trouble. And we are frightened. This is maybe not right. So thank you, but no, no. And they went along. And the third person walking upon the road that they encountered was, as she is called in this story, La Calavera, death, <coughs> death herself. And she said, I know what you are looking for, and I will be the godparent to your son. Give him to me, and if you give him to me, I will make him, out of him, a great healer like myself. Mm -hmm. mm. How do you like that? And they went and they talked. And they came back and they looked at her and they said, yes, you may be his godmother because you treat everyone equally. <laughs> so she said, she said, when he comes of age, bring him to me and I will teach him the healing art the great art of healing, of when things should live and when things should die. 
So when the boy was 16 years of old, age, they took him into the woods and called for La Calavera, and she appeared. And she took him deeper into the woods and showed him Yerba Buena, the healing herbs, and taught him the medicine of life and death. And she said, if you take this herb and place it on their tongue if they are ill, they will recover and revive. But there is one more thing I must tell you, my godson, very important. When you go, whether it is on the roadside, or in a hovel, or in a great castle, or in a hospital, when you go to heal those who are sick, I will be standing there by their bed. And if I am standing at the head of the bed, if they are mine, if it is their time, you must announce in a very loud voice, there is nothing that can be done for this soul but to leave them for their destiny, if I am standing at the head of the bed. But if I am standing at the foot of the bed, then it is their destiny that they may live longer, and that person will recover. If you heal them, you may take the herb and place it on their tongue and bring them healing back to life. Yes, Godmother, yes, Godmother, I will remember all of this, and took her blessings and went out and practiced healing. And as he did, he became a great healer because he knew when people would live and when they would die. He could come and he could see where she was, and he would know, and he could heal those who could be healed. And he became famous and wealthy. And one day, a very important general who had taken over much of the lands, the land, became gravely ill, oh, so near death. And he gathered together his lieutenants, and he said, go call this famous doctor, tell him to come to me. And the doctor came, and he was so ill, and he's so sick. And the commandant pleaded. He said, if you can heal me, doctor, I will give you half of my land grant, enormous piece of land, with valleys and trees and rivers. Look and see as far as you can see, ten times that far. <coughs> and the young man thought, oh, what beautiful land. I would so much love to have this, to live on this. Looked at the water and the trees, and then he looked up at the bed, and La Calavera was standing at the head of the bed. And he thought about the land and the valleys and the rivers and what it would be to live on that. And something came over him, and he turned the bed around, <laughs> and he put the herb on the general's tongue. And he revived and came back to life. And the general signed over the land to him, and he had this rolled-up land grant, tucked it under his arm, and was leaving to go. And who did he meet in the hall? <laughs> La Calavera. And she was not happy. She said, don't you ever do that again. Never can you do that again. And he said, but God, Mama, I am your godson. I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, I won't ever do it again. She said, because you are my godson, 
This time you may do this, but never again. So he got on a horse given by the general, took the land grant paper, and was riding away over some hills toward the next village, come to an inn to rest, and all of a sudden he heard a horse galloping, and a man came in, and he said, the general must have you back. His daughter has an illness, the same one perhaps he had. You must help her. So he got on his horse and rode back. And there, as the general had been, was his daughter lying there, so ill and sick. And he looked at her, and she was indeed a beautiful young woman. His heart was smitten. He fell in love, maybe because her cheeks were a little redder from the fever, you know. She looked so beautiful and vulnerable and delicate. And he thought, oh, so beautiful. And the general said, if you, if you can heal my daughter, I will give her to you as your wife. Ah, oh, he thought, what? Life will be complete. Everything I have ever wanted. So he looked carefully, and he became overcome with longing and desire of how it could be, how it should be. But you know what else he saw standing at the head of the bed? was Calavera, la Calavera. He saw her and the longing, how it could be. And he got possessed again and he turned the bed upside down. And she was standing by the feet and he gave the herb and sure enough, the girl came back to life. <sighs> he was so happy. But when he walked out into the hallway, who was waiting for him? And she grabbed him. She said, you come with me, and walked him out of that building and into the woods and opened this doorway to a great stone staircase. And they walked down and down, and the walls were moist and weeping. And there was an iron door that they opened, and they walked down another stone staircase and another down, down into this huge cavernous room lit with candles, huge, filled with candles. And she said, my godson, do you know what this place is? He said, no. She said, this is the place of life and death. And the candles are for each life. And he looked around. Some of them were great, big, fat, huge, tall candles. Others were little tiny ones. Some were even kind of sputtering. And he said, oh, I know. The big ones are the babies just born, and the little ones are the old people ready to die. And she said, no, my godson. She said, some of the big ones are babies just born, but some of them are old people with great life force. And some of the little ones are old people ready to die, but some of the little ones are also newborn children with very little life. He looked around with some awe at this place, and he wondered to himself, wonder where is my candle, how big it is. He said, where is my candle? She said, do you want to see it? He said, I do, I do, please. So she took him over, and there was this small candle sputtering a little bit, and he became frightened. And he said, no, no. That can't be mine. You must, you must find a big candle and light it from that. 
And she said, I could do that, but we cannot light a candle in here until the last one goes out. And he said, oh no, I want to live so badly, so badly. I have this beautiful land grant, this beautiful woman. Please light another for your godson, please. And she looked at him and she said, all right. And she took the tallest, biggest, most beautiful candle and brought it over as though to light it from his candle and looked into his eyes. And at the last minute, she turned it upside down and set it down on top of his candle and it went out. Because no one can cheat La Calavera and get away with it. <coughs> that is the end of the story. You see, a story like that, and all these great stories, are really about ourselves, a part of ourselves. For there is within each of us one who knows when it is time to live and when it is time to die. And in fact, my father died when it was his time to die. He really didn't want to go back. He was getting infirm. and. He didn't know if he could take care of himself in his own apartment, and he did not want to go to a nursing home. He called them evil places. said he'd sooner die than go there, which he did. There's something in us when we see with our hearts when it's time to leave, to end, to let go, not just of death, but of school or relationship or work. We know. And then sometimes, of course, we try and turn the bed around. No, no, it's not time yet. You know that in you, hmm? And you can do that once in a while, but not very often. Try it in a relationship. What happens sometimes? You will know if it's the time for the healing herb or the other time. It's as if that is the place in us that sees with the heart, that sees the seasons, breathing in and out, and the, cycles of our body, the menstrual cycles of the moon, of women, the cycles of our children growing, the cycles of the seasons. And for some, the ends are difficult, and for some, the ends are release and longing. Just to be released, it's a blessing. So from the 90th Psalm, which is part of the Jewish funeral ceremony, Thou hast been a, a dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art the divine. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. In the morning it flourish and grows up, and in the evening it is cut down and withers. The days of our years are threescore and ten. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Satisfy us early with thy mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all the days we are given. 
So this is a part of us in this story that knows the true seasons of life. And it's important to listen to because without an understanding of death, life becomes painful and confusing. It's a terrible thing to live as we do in a society that doesn't invest in its children. I mean, it's really sad that as rich a society as we are, we are not supporting schools and we are letting the children in the inner cities eat lead paint. We spend less per child on the children who are at risk in our culture than we do on the ordinary ones, much less. We're the only industrialized nation to do so. All the rest, when children are at risk, they give them more. We give them less. I rode on the train to Philadelphia to my father's with a beautiful African-American man who works in the juvenile justice system in District of Columbia, in one of the murder capitals of the world. And he works with young men who are in prison for homicide. And he does initiation rites for them. And he said, I, I take them, he said, these young men have killed and I, he said, I tell them they're slaves. He said, you come in here and you got your hands and your feet shackled. He said, you're just living out what was supposed to happen to you. You're still slaves of your anger and, and, and your, you know, your fears. And he said, then I brought them in pictures I got from the morgue of what people's bodies look like who've been shot. And he said, they couldn't look at them. I said, you guys are tough. Come look at these pictures. And they couldn't let themselves look at it. Without an understanding of death, life is confusing. Death becomes an advisor. That's why they made La Calavera to be the godmother. My father, as he got closer to death, became softer and more gracious. He was proud of his four sons. But he never said it to us. You know, and when I was with him, he was really happy that I was with him the last week. Um, and I helped him to stand up and to sit down. And, and he just kept saying, I'm so, I'm so grateful that you're here. But he'd never said that. It's like the last year of his life, he finally began to learn some great lessons. It took a long time. He was also a very difficult man. He was quite abusive and controlling and fearful. And he was also creative and funny and I loved him. He had all kinds of qualities. And as I was with him, holding him, caring for him, he talked about his whole life. He reviewed it. And he asked me what I thought. Imagine that. I said, I didn't see it was my place to judge anyone's life, but that I was really grateful that he told me the story because I loved him and I wanted to know what my father's life was for him. Somehow life, when we have La Calavera as a godmother, as an advisor, our life takes a kind of meaning because we rest in the truth that we can't possess things. There's a justice to it, a maturity. You know, as we grow in our dharma, which is to say in our hearts, our spiritual life, 
there's a maturing that sees that joy and sorrow can't be separated. The unfathomable beauty of life and the ocean of tears come together. It's like Shakespeare's last plays all speak of that. You can't take them apart. And those who have seen death close at hand, for whom death is an advisor, have a responsibility for the earth in front of them. It's like your soul deepens in that mystery. I've known rivers. I've known rivers ancient as the world and older than the flow of human blood in human veins. I bathed in the Euphrates, the Congo, in the Nile. My soul has grown deep like rivers. That's Langston Hughes. So that death becomes not something to be frightened of, but something to remember. I read you a wonderful poem from Mary Oliver, who won the Pulitzer Prize for her poetry. When death comes, like the hungry bear in autumn, when death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse to buy me and snaps the purse shut, I want to step through that door full of curiosity, wondering what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness. And therefore I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood, and I look upon time as no more than an idea, and eternity as another possibility. And I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy, and as singular, as precious to the earth. When it's over, I want to say all my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I've made of my life something particular and real I don't want to find myself sighing or frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. We think when we lose touch that La Calavera is far away. You know, today is the 30th death anniversary of John F. Kennedy. Remember, for those of you who can remember that, for some it was like the first moment, really the shock of death for some of us. We think she's far away, but she's not. She's always here. When I flew back home from the funeral and I crawled into bed late at night with my wife, with Liana, I was lying there talking, and I said, you know, I have this funny feeling. I feel like my father lying here, and you're my mother. She said, oh dear. <laughs> and I said, not only that, I feel my grandfather and grandmother, and they're all here. You understand? Because in all these great cultures, and you could feel it at the funeral, all the traditions of death around the world connect us with the world of the ancestors that are still there with us, as Calavera is. Death is stalking us. She is. But it's not what she seems. She is a gift. 
She's a great advisor. If you are a poet, or you wish to be a wise woman or a wise man, you don't want her to go away. You know, Naropa, who was the teacher of Marpa and Milarepa, the great Tibetan yogis and saints, he was the master of this enormous university in India, Nalanda University, the big scholar. And one day he was out reading these texts on logic and spiritual precepts, sitting in the sun, and this shadow fell across his book. And looking around, he saw a woman so ugly. Her eyes were red and deep hollowed. Her hair was fox-colored, disheveled. Her forehead protruded. Her face was shriveled. Her ears were long and lumpy. Her nose was twisted and inflamed. She had a yellow beard streaked with white. Her tongue made chewing and sucking movements and noises. She licked her lips and whistled when she yawned. She was weeping and tears ran down her cheeks. She shivered and panted for breath. Her complexion was dark blue, her skin rough and thick. She was bent over and lame. This is the great hag, you know. And she's here. She's not far away. And she said to him, Do you understand those words? And he said, Yes. And she did a little dance, the little hag's dance. Woo! As the hag can do, yeah, la calavera. And seeing how happy this made her, he said, I also understand the meaning. And she threw down her stick and began to weep and tremble. When he asked her why, she said, I felt happy that at least as a scholar you knew what you knew, but I felt so sad when you told a lie that you didn't understand what you were reading because you didn't. And then she vanished in a rainbow. And she was his first real teacher. She became, later, she came in a different form to him as a teacher. But death is the teacher. And she comes in all kinds of forms. And you want her. Because then your life is alive. She keeps the fire alive. Thich Nhat Hanh. This morning I have no matches and my fireplace is cold like a damp autumn day. You know, in the villages there weren't matches when he grew up or where I lived in Thailand. and Even in the 60s they didn't have matches. Somebody kept a fire going. That's how it was. If your fire went out, you had to go and get fire from a neighbor. My painting is only half finished. I go to a neighbor to ask for some fire. You remember this as little boys. We used to do this. You ask me, what will I do if our neighbor has no fire left? I answer, we'll go singing together through the hamlet. I remember, mother told me, we'll ask you to come along to the next hamlet. <coughs> Please don't forget to sing. I'm sure someone in our hamlet still has fire. I ask all of you to hold up your hands and tell me the truth. Do you believe, as I do, that someone in our hamlet is keeping the fire alive? You see, it's said that any moment on this earth, somewhere, there is someone practicing the Dharma, awakening compassion, seeing the truth of all things changing, resting with freedom in the midst of it. And because somewhere on this earth, at any moment, there is someone keeping the fire alive. It doesn't die out. That's what's said. And you are part of that. It's like that cellist 
that sat in the square every day at four o'clock in Sarajevo and played his cello in the midst of the war. He was one of the people who kept the fire alive. So I ask you to reflect, as La Calavera would ask you, what are you beginning now in this life? And what is dying to allow that beginning to happen? Close your eyes for a moment. You don't have to change your posture. You can just sit there. What is beginning and what is dying? To come now to remind you. What does she want to say to you about your life this year, today? When have you last had a glimpse of her, of death? What was the reminder? And what voice came when you listened? <clears throat> when I sat with my father, and after he died, I not only did the loving-kindness meditation that we do, but I did the practice of taking and sending, of breathing in his fear and pain, because he was frightened. So I would breathe in and take in his pain and his fear, and then breathe out loving-kindness. I taught him a loving-kindness meditation. I don't think that made much difference. But what did make a difference was that I was there, and that I felt that love, and he knew that. It's a beautiful practice. Breathing in, imagine you could breathe in the fear of those who are dying or frightened or in pain, and take it from them to your heart. And breathe out your good wishes. May they be filled with loving kindness. May they be held in peace. May they be held in the great heart of compassion. Breathing in the fears, taking the fear and pain of those in difficulty. We can do that. And breathing out loving kindness and compassion. My father was quite frightened before he died. Many of the days, difficult to sleep. He told a lot of stories. I guess he was like all fathers. It's beautiful things and difficult things. He died in his sleep, which is good. And he died in his temple, which is to say he most believed in modern medicine. I would have liked to die with a, you know, candle and some loving friends around. But as a scientist, he developed some of the first artificial hearts ever built and artificial lungs. He did space medicine. He designed all these. He was a biophysicist. 
And so when he was lying in the hospital, the doctor said, you know, one of the problems dealing with your dad is that he's always watching the monitors, his heart and the machines and stuff like that, and telling us what we should be doing, you know. But he was happy. It was the University of Pennsylvania where he'd gone to school. It was their medical school. It was the best people in the city, Ivy League medical school, hospital. It was his temple. So it was. So he died in his temple, which was the right place for him. And before he died, he left at his apartment some, he left very little. He never told his sons that he loved them. He did, but he couldn't say it. But he left an album of pictures of our growing up for us and things that were very beautiful. And then he left a piece of music uh, that he asked be played at his funeral, a kind of elegy. And when we played it, it reminded me of something, of how much he'd loved music, even though he didn't let us know that much, but I knew it. He was a good musician, although he rarely played. And how much he loved beauty. He had a lot of struggle in his life, but underneath it all, I listened to this music and I saw how much he loved beauty. And it gave me this sense of how beautiful that being was deep in there with all the other things that were around it. It is like that passage I read often from Thomas Merton. Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret depth, the secret beauty of their hearts, the depth of their heart where neither desire nor knowledge nor sin can reach, the core of their reality, the person that each one is in God's eyes. If only they could see themselves as they really are, if only we could see each other that way all the time, there would be no more need for war, for hatred, no more need for cruelty or greed. I suppose the big problem would be that we would fall down and worship each other. And there was some way in hearing this piece of music that I could hear that beauty that was in my father. And is there, that beauty is there in every single being. So in a moment, what I'd like to do is play this piece of music for you. It's short. It's just five minutes long. And before I do, I want to remind you, tell you something else. Aura Hathaway, who's a member of the community, she's the person who usually stands out and collects the money in the parking lot this last year, landscape architect and a dear friend. Her brother was in Alaska recently um, and had a serious accident, a snowmobile accident and is in a coma and not expected to recover and so she's up there with him and as we play this music as I play this music I'd like it's for my father as a way to honor him and for Aura's brother and for every being for that which is beautiful in the soul or the spirit in the essence of every single being so sit quietly if you would
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.